Hello, and thank you once again for joining me. Uh, as we continue with the reading of the dispensational truth done by Clarence Larkin, uh, today we're going to visit uh, pre-millennialism and also adventure into, I think it's uh, the mountain peaks of prophecy. Heavenly Father, I just give thanks for this day. I thank you, dear Lord, for the wonderful weather which was, was enjoyed. I thank you for the peace and comfort that you have provided this day. And Lord, I just ask and continue to pray for this nation, dear Heavenly Father. I pray for, for your guidance in this upcoming election, dear Lord, that we make a right choice in who is to lead this nation for the next four years. And Lord, all the things going on in this world today, I know you're in charge. I just ask that you just keep your hands on those faithful, dear Heavenly Father, rising them to a point of obedience where they will stand when the darkness comes. And Lord, I just Thank you for this opportunity to share these words in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, uh, it's been a beautiful day here in Western Kentucky today. In fact, it was such a nice day that uh, I went out and um, grilled, you know. So I got all my uh, week's food uh, grilled this week. So I'm going to have an enjoyable time. So. In the meantime, let's get started here. Premillennialism. <coughs> the time of the second coming of Christ is the key that unlocks all dispensational truth. The vast majority of Christians believe in the personal return of the Lord, but they differ as to the time. They are divided into two schools, the premillennialist and the postmillennialist. The premillennialists believe that Christ will return before the millennium. The postmillennialists that he will not come until after. By the millennium is meant a period of a thousand years mentioned in Revelations 20, verse 1 and 7. It is common but wholly erroneous expression that the premillennialists base their belief mainly, if not solely, on the passage in the Apocalypse. The fact is the question of whether Christ's return will proceed to follow the millennium annotates the Apocalypse. The Old Testament prophets in plain language and in glowing terms foretold an era or age of universal righteousness and peace on this earth under the reign of the Messiah the Prince. But the disciples were not mistaken in their belief in such an earthly kingdom ruled over by their promised Messiah is evident from the fact that Jesus never reproved them from holding such a belief. And after his resurrection and previous to his ascension, when they asked him if he would at that time restore the kingdom to Israel, which is Acts uh, chapter 1 verse 6, he did not say, you are mistaken in your idea of an earthly kingdom. The kingdom I came to set up, and that was meant by the prophets, 
is a spiritual kingdom. But, he said, it is not for you to know the time and seasons, that is, when it shall be set up. The whole teaching of the Old Testament as to the coming of the Messiah is the premillennial. The only use that premillennialists have is for the thousand-year passage in Revelation chapter 20, verse 1 and 7, is to fix the length of that age of righteousness and peace. In fact, Jewish tradition, based on the Sabbath rest of Genesis chapter 2, verse 1 and 3, taught that the 7,000 years from creation was to be a period of Sabbath rest, or what is called the millennial. The passage in Revelation simply confirms this tradition. Expunge the passage, and you do not weaken the argument. You only leave as uncertain the length of time that the age shall last. The Apostolic Church was pre-millennial, and for over 200 years no other view was entertained. The writings of the Church Fathers abound in the evidence in the fact that about A.D. 250 Origen, one of the Church Fathers, conceived the idea that the words of Scripture were but the husk in which was hid the kernel of the spiritual truth. At once he began to allegorize and spiritualize the scriptures and thus founded that school of allegorizing and spiritualizing interpretations of scripture from which the church and the Bible have suffered so much. The result was that the church largely ceased to look for the Lord to return and set up an earthly kingdom. When Constantine became sole emperor in Rome in A.D. 323, being favorable to Christianity, he united church and state. A new difficulty now arose in the interpretation of scripture. If, as was at the time believed, Rome was to be the seat of Antichrist. The questioning arose, or rather was suspiciously whispered, is Constantine the Antichrist? Such an notion was unpalatable for the Roman Empire, and so a convenient explanation was discovered and adopted that Antichrist was a pagan Rome, and that the millennium commenced when Constantine ascended the throne. This was given color by the great gifts and privileges bestowed on the Church of Constantine, and led to the claim that the millennial blessing of the Old Testament had been transferred from the Jews to the Christian Church. But the claim that the Papal Church was the Antichrist would not down. When it was found impossible to expunge the Book of Revelation from the sacred canon, it was decided to lock up the scripture, and the Bible became a sealed book and the gloom of night settled down upon all Christendom. The result was the Dark Ages, but amid the gloom God was not without witnesses to the truth. The Paulines, the Abligans, the Waldens, and other sects bore testimony to the premillennial return of the Lord. But the darkness was not internal. When the fullness of time was come, the morning star of the Revelation, John Wycliffe, arose and was soon followed by the sun, Martin Luther, the brightness of whose light dispelled the darkness.
the doctrine of the premillennial return of the Lord was revived, but the reformers did not go far enough. The period was one of religious strife and the information of new religious sects. This result was an ebb of spirituality and the growth of rationalism, which refused to believe that the world was fast ripening for judgment and the new interpretations of the millennial reign of Christ was demanded. This interpretation was furnished by the Reverend Daniel Whitby, uh, 1638-1726, a clergyman of the Church of England who claimed that in reading the promise made to the Jews in the Old Testament of their restoration as a nation and to be reestablished of the throne of David, he was led to see that the promises were spiritual and applied to the church. This view was called a new hypothesis. He claimed that Israel and Mount Zion represented the church, that the promised submission of the Gentiles to the Jews was simply prophetic of the conversion of the Gentiles and their entrance into the church, that the laying down of the lion and lamb together typified the reconciliation of the old and new natures, and that the establishment of an outward and visible kingdom at Jerusalem over which Christ and his saints would reign was gross and carnal and contrary to reason, as it implied the mingling together of human and spiritual beings on earth. His new hypothesis was that by the preaching of the gospel, Mohammedism would be overthrown. The Jews converted the papal church with the Pope, Antichrist would be destroyed, and there would follow a thousand years of righteousness and peace known as the millennial, at the close of which there would be a short period of apophysy ending in the return of Christ. There would then be a general resurrection of the dead followed by a general judgment the earth would be destroyed by fire, and eternity would begin. The times were favorable for the new theory. The reaction had set in from the open infidelity of those days, and all England was in a religious fever. The Great Awakening followed under Whitfield and Wesley, and it looked as Whitby claimed that the millennium was about to be ushered in. That he was mistaken, the events of his of history since that time have shown. It is evident that we are not in the millennial now. Nevertheless, his theory was favorably received everywhere and spread with great rapidity and became an established doctrine of the church, and is what is known as today as the postmillennial view of the second coming of Christ and supposed to be the orthodox faith of the church. In short, postmillennialism, as advocated in our day, is barely 200 years old. Premillennialism dates back to the days of Isaiah and Daniel. The sad thing is that this false doctrine of the postmillennialism is taught in our Bibles by the heading of chapters in the Old Testament. For illustration, the heading of the chapter 43 and 4 of Hosea 
read, The Lord comforteth the church with his promises, whereas the chapters are not addressed to the church at all, but to Jacob and Israel, as we see by reading them. The ordinary reader overlooks the fact that the chapter heading of the Bible are put there by the publisher and should be omitted as they are misleading. As for the illustration, the title of the book of Revelation, which is called the Revelation of St. John the Divine, whereas it should be called the Revelation of Jesus Christ. And that's Revelation 1.1. Premillennialists are divided into three different schools of interpretation, which are fundamentally an agnostic, known as the Preatist and historical, and the Futurist schools. The Preatist school originated with Jesuit Alzar. His view was first put forth as a complete scheme in his work on the Apocalyptic, published in AD 1614. It limits the scope of the Apocalypse to the events of the Apostle John's life and affirms that the whole prophecy was fulfilled in the destruction of Jerusalem by Titus and the subsequent fall of the persecuting Roman Empire, thus making the Empire Nero the Antichrist. The purpose of the scheme was transparent. It was to revive the Papal Church from the stigma of being called the Harlot Church and the Pope from being called the Antichrist. It is a view that is now little advocated. The historical school, sometimes spoken as the the Priyanist scheme, interprets the Apocalypse as a series of prophecies predicting events that were to happen in the world and in the Church from John's day to the end of time. The advocates of this school interpret the symbols of the book of Revelation is referring to certain historical events that have or are happening in the world. They claim that the Antichrist is the system rather than a person and is represented by the Harlot Church of Rome. They interpret the time element in the book on the year-day scale. This school has had some very able and ingenious advocates. This view, like the preceding, was unknown to the early church. It appeared about the middle of the 20th century and was systemized in the beginning of the 13th century by Abbot Jochum. Subsequently, it was adopted and applied to the Pope by the forerunners and leaders of the Reformation and may be said to have reached the zenith in Mr. Elcott's Horace Apopolistic. It is frequently called the Protestant interpretation because it regards popery as exhausting all that has been predicted by the anti-Christian power. It was a powerful and formidable weapon in the hands of the leaders of the Reformation, and the conviction of the truthfulness nerved them to love not their lives unto death. It was the secret of the martyr heroism of the 16th century. The futuristic school interprets the language of the apocalypse literally, except such symbols 
as are named as such and holds that the whole of the book from the end of the third chapter is yet future and unfulfilled and that the greater part of the book from the beginning of the chapter 6 to the end of the chapter 19 describes what shall come to pass during the last week of Daniel's 70 weeks. This view, while it dates in modern times only from the close of the 16th century, is really the most ancient of the three. It was held in many of its prominent features by the preemptive fathers of the church and is one of the early interpretations of scripture truth that sunk into oblivion with the growth of papacy and that has been restored to the church in these last times. In its present form, it may be said to have originated at the end of the 16th century with the Jewish Reber, who actuated by the same motive as the Jesuit Alazar sought to rid the papacy of the stigma of being called the Antichrist and so referred the prophecies of the Apocalypse to distant future. This view was accepted by the Roman Catholic Church and was for a long time confirmed to it, but strange to say, it has wonderfully revived since the beginning of the 19th century and among the Protestants. It is most largely accepted of the three views. It has been charged with ignoring the papal and Mohammedism systems, but this is far from truth, for it looks upon them as foreshadowed in the scripture and sees in them the type of those great anti-types, yet future, the beast and the false prophet. The futurist interpretation of scripture is the one employed in this book. The second and pre-millennial coming of Christ is the key to the scriptures. All the prophetical writings make it their terminal end. This is a dark world, and the sure word of prophecy is given as a light to show us the way over the stormy sea of time. That's 2 Peter verse 1, chapter 19, or, or chapter, chapter 1, verse 19. Prophecy is not a haphazard guess like our weather probabilities. It is history written in advance. The moment we grasp this idea of prophecy and clearly see the relation of Christ's pre-millennial coming to scriptural truth, the Bible becomes a new book and doctrine of prophetical truth as once fall into their proper place and our theological system is no longer a chaos but an orderly plan. The Mountain Peaks of Prophecy The Bible is unlike all other books, a sacred books, in that it bases its authenticity and authority on prophecy. All other sacred books contain no predictions as to the future. If their authors had attempted to foretell future events, their non-fulfillment would long err. This have discredited their writing. Fulfilled prophecy is stronger evidence for the inspiration and authenticity of the scriptures than miracles. Prophecy is not a haphazard guess. 
nor a probability made up of uncertain data or whether probabilities. Prophecy is history written in advance. Or as another has said, prophecy is the mold of history. The importance of the study of prophetic, prophetic scripture is seen when we recall that two-thirds of the scriptures are prophetic, either in type, symbol, or direct statement, and more than one-half of the Old Testament prophecies and nearly all the New Testament point to events yet future. Then this is a dark world, and men need the sure word of prophecy to light to see them over the stormy sea of time and that's second peter chapter 1 verse 19 what men see that god has a plan and a purpose in the ages they take heart and have something to pin their faith to it was because the religious leaders of christ's day were not students of the prophetic scripture that they failed to recognize him when he came and if the religion leaders in our day despise and reject the study of prophecy they will not be ready for Christ's second coming there are four prophetic periods clearly outlined in the scripture you have the patriarchal which is between BC uh, 1921 to 1491 then you have the Mosaic, which was B.C. 1491 to 1370, and the Jewish, which was post-exile, which was B.C. 500-400, the exile, 600 to 500, and the pre-exile, which was B.C. 900 to 600. And then there was four years of silence, 400 years of silence. And then you have the Apostolic, which was A.D. 27 to 100, these prophecies divided themselves into three grand divisions. One, past, fulfilled prophecy. Two, present, fulfilling prophecy. There, these are the prophecies that refer to the Jews, the nation, and the moral and religious character at the time. And three, the future, the unfilled prophecy. The requirements of a genuine prediction are five in number. One, it must have been made known prior to its fulfillment. Two, it must be beyond all human foresight. Three, it must give details. Four, a significant time must elapse between its publication and fulfillment to exclude the prophet or any interested party from fulfilling it. And five, there must be a clear and evident fulfillment of the prophecy. The value of the argument for the interpretation of the scriptures from prophecy is evident when we study the law of compound probabilities. If I were to predict an earthquake in Philadelphia next year, the chance would be one in two that it would occur. If I should add another prediction that it would be on the 4th of July, the chance increases to one in four. And if I add another detail that it will be in the daytime, the chance then becomes one in eight. And if I should add the fourth detail, the chance would be one in 32. And if the details were 10 in number, the chance would be one in 1,024. Now, 
There were 25 specific predictions made by the Old Testament, prophets bearing on the betrayal, trial, death, and burial of Jesus. They were uttered by different prophets during the period from B.C. 1000 to B.C. 5000, yet they were all literally fulfilled in 24 hours in one person. According to the law of compound probabilities, there was one chance in 33,554,432 that there were 25 predictions would be fulfilled as prophecy. If one prophet should make several predictions as to some one event, he might be collusion with others to bring it to pass, but when a number of prophets distributed over several centuries give detailed and specific prediction as to some event, the charge of collusion cannot be sustained. In fact, there were 109 predictions literally fulfilled at Christ's first advent in the flesh. Apply the law of compound probabilities and to this number and the chance was one in billion billions that they should be fulfilled in one person. The argument that Jesus employed to convince these two mourning disciples walking to Emmaus that he was the Messiah was the appeal to prophecy and beginning at Moses all the prophets he expounded unto them all the scriptures, Old Testament scriptures, the things concerning himself. And that's Luke chapter 24, verse 27. It would be intensely interesting reading and amazingly helpful if we only had in Luke's gospel a full report of that afternoon's conversation. The two disciples were familiar with the things that had occurred the previous week at the arrest, the trial, the crucifixion, and the burial of Jesus, as well as the rumors of his resurrection. It was not difficult, therefore, Jesus to take those things and, by quoting from the Old Testament scripture, show that they were just what the prophets had foretold, what happened to the Messiah when he came. He reminded them that the prophet had said that the Messiah should be sold for 30 pieces of silver. And that's Zechariah chapter 11, verse 12. Be betrayed by a friend. That's Psalms 41, verse 9. Forsaken by his disciples. Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7. Accused by a false witness. Psalms chapter 35, verse 11. Be dumb before his accusers. Isaiah 53, 7. Be scourged, Isaiah 56. His garments pardoned, parted, Psalms 22, 18. Mocked by his enemies, Psalm 22, 7 and 8. Be given guile and vinegar to drink, Psalms 69, 21. Not a bone of his body broken, Psalms 34, 20. Die with malefactors, Isaiah 53:12, that the price of his betrayal 
should be used to purchase a potter's field. Zechariah 11:13, and that he should be buried in a rich man's tomb. Isaiah 53:9. But Jesus doubtless did not stop with simply proving that the crucified Christ fulfilled all the requirements of prophecy. It was a long walk they had. Jesus doubtless joined them soon after they left Jerusalem for Emmaus, which was some six miles away. So he had ample time in which to outline the prophecies, the prophetic portrait of the Messiah. Messiah turning to Genesis chapter 22, verse 7 and 8. He pictured Isaiah as a type of Christ, and the God spared Abraham's son, but he did not spare his own son. He then called attention to the institution of the Passover and recalled the fact that in preparing the lamb for roasting, two spits were used, one thrust lengthwise through the body for the support over the fire and the other across the shoulders for the turning, thus symbolizing the cross on which the Lamb of God was suspended. He then reminded them that Jesus had said in one of his discourses, and I, if and I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men unto me. And that's John chapter 12, verse 32. And having thus refreshed their memory, he took them back to that incident in history of the children of Israel, of the brazen snake, and pointed out that it was a type of how men are bitten with the serpent of sin and need a savior, and how Jesus, by being lifted up, took the place of the brazen serpent, and that all that look to him in faith shall be delivered from the results of sin. Then Jesus spoke of the prophet Jonah, and what befell him, and he recalled his own prophecy, which doubtless they had heard, but had forgotten, that as Jonah was three days and three nights in the well's body, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And that's Matthew chapter 12, verse 40. Thus showing them that they should not have been surprised at the report they had heard that morning that Jesus had risen from the dead. It is any wonder as Jesus thus went on outlining the prophetic Christ and comparing him with the historic Christ that they had known and loved that their heart burned within them as they walked with him all the way and opened up to them the scriptures Luke chapter 24 verse 32 how easy a colonundrum seems when we know the answer and how simple the scripture becomes when we know the answer and how simple the scripture becomes when we see Christ in them for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy and that's Revelation chapter 19 verse 10 that is the spirit and the purpose of all prophecy is to testify of Jesus how important then is the study of prophecy now we have seen that there are a hundred nine predictions of the Old Testament prophets literally fulfilled in Christ's first advent 
but there are 845 quotations from the Old Testament and the New Testament, and 333 of these refer to Christ. They vary from types and figures that seem meaningless unless you place Christ in them, to exact predictions that at times descend to a, a minuscule details. The only book of the Old Testament not quoted in the New Testament are Ruth, Ezra, Nehemiah, Songs of Solomon, and Obadiah. The Old Testament scriptures here bear a double witness to Jesus. They point out both his first and second coming. And the same prophet is referring to two comings, did always name them in the proper order. This was confusing in, to Bible students and religious leaders of Christ's day. In fact, they did not know that there were to be two comings. Therefore, they are not to be too harshly judged because they rejected Christ because he did not come set up an earthly kingdom. They did not separate the prophecies that foretold his suffering from the prophecies that foretold his glory. That's first period chapter 1 verse 10 through 12 they believed all that the prophecies that referred to the Messiah Christ were to be filled at his first coming this accounts for why the people of Christ's day looked for him to set up an earthly kingdom they did not see that this present dispension of or church age was intervene between the suffering, the cross, and the glory, the crown. But we stand on this side of Calvary and can readily separate the fulfilled prophecies of the first advent from the unfulfilled prophecies of the second advent. This is clearly brought out in, in a chart of the mountain of the prophecies. The Old Testament prophets saw the future as separate peaks of one mountain. He did not see that these peaks assembled themselves in groups with a valley, the valley of the church. Between and the first group is the birth of Jesus, the Calvary, the Pentecost, and the second group is Antichrist, the revelation of Christ, and the kingship of Christ. The prophet Isaiah did not see that comma in the second verse that separated between the statements the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God was to span a period covering the whole of this present disposition. And already over 1900 years long, likewise the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 23 verse 5 and 6, separates with a comma the first and second advent, or between the righteous branch and the king who shall reign and prosper. The prophecy saw the prophetic and kingly work of Christ, but they did not see the priestiality. They saw the altar, the sacrificial, and the throne, but they did not see the table, the Lord's table, that was to come in between. As shown on the chart, the prophet saw in a direct line along the peaks of prophecy and did not see the valley of Christ in between. Our viewpoint is from the side. 
We face the valley with the first advent, the cross. In our left, the second advent, the crown. In our right, all we have to do is separate the prophecies of the first advent from the prophetic references to Christ in the Old Testament and apply the balance to the second advent. This simplifies the study of prophecy. Isaiah prophecy have mainly to do with the Messiah and Israel. Jeremiah is the prophecy, prophet of Israel's return to their own land. And with the millennial land restored, temple and the form of worship, Daniel is the prophet of the Gentiles and their final great leader, the Antichrist. Zechariah is the most concerned about the events that shall happen at the second coming of Christ. Number one, the Antichrist, the idol shepherd. That's Zechariah 11, verse 15 and 7. Two, Armageddon, Zechariah 14, verse 1 and 3. Number three, conversion of Israel, Zechariah 12, 9 through 14. Number four, Christ's return to Olive, Zechariah 14, 4 through 11. Number five, old age in Jerusalem, Zechariah 8, chapter 3 through 8. And six, the Feast of Tabernacles, Zechariah 14, 16 through 21. We notice that Zechariah does not see these events in their chronological order. All the major prophets and nine of the modern prophets emphasized the kingship of Christ, and it was that confused the religious leaders of Christ's day. The perspective of the prophecy, the chart of the perspective, shows that what each of the prophets foresaw, the future events from the birth of Christ on down to the new heavens and the new earth, a careful study of the chart will show that the prophet Nahum saw nothing beyond his time, while the prophet Isaiah saw more, and the farthest of all the prophets. There is no fact in history more clearly established than the fact of the first coming of Christ. But as his first coming did not fulfill all the prophecies associated with his coming, it is evident that there must be another coming to completely fill them. It was because the religion, religious leaders of Christ's day failed to distinguish between the prophecies that related to his first coming and those that related to his second coming, that they rejected him. Peter tells us, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10 through 11, that the prophets themselves did not clearly perceive the difference between the suffering and glory of Christ. That is, they did not see that there was a time space between the cross and the crown, and that the cross would precede the crown. But we have no excuse we live on this side of the cross, and we readily pick up all the prophecies that were fulfilled at Christ's first coming and apply the remainder to his second coming. It is clear that Christ's first coming is important as it was not the doctrinal center of the scriptures. That is, Christ's first coming was not the center of the circle that contains all the doctrine, but was one of the focal of the eclipse of which 
the other is the second coming. This alrighty there. I think I'm going to end here and I'm going to see if I can't um, find um, these charts for you because they're very, very uh, understanding. <coughs> you can understand the reading of the latter part of what I'm read if you have the chart to look at. Heavenly Father, I just thank you, dear Lord. I thank you for uh, this opportunity and I thank you, Lord, for uh, this book, very helpful, very eye-opening, and I hope and pray, Lord, that I'm able to uh, locate uh, copies of these charts that I may uh, place uh, a link so people can go and uh, discover this for themselves. I just give you all the praise in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so uh, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to see if I can't find uh, these charts that uh, the hopefully they're posted somewhere online. If not, you, I, I don't, um, I don't really know how I can. Um, uh, I'll have to figure that out. See if we, there's some way that uh, you can view these because these are really uh, works of art and uh, a very, very uh, explain a lot. So with that, I hope and pray that you have a blessed day. Uh, have a good week. And um, I will see you uh, next time. In the meantime, be with Christ.